Welcome to tape number 13 of Gleanings in the Godhead, Part 2, Excellencies which Pertain to God the Son as Christ by A.W. Pink. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. There is no copyright on this material, and we encourage you to reproduce it and pass it on to your friends. Many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, T6L3T5. If you do not have a web connection, please request a free printed catalog. If you do have a web connection and would like to be added to our email list, please send an email to add at swrb.com with the word add in the subject line. And now to our reading of Part 2 of Gleanings in the Godhead by A.W. Pink, which we pray you find to be a great blessing, and which we hope draws you near to the Lord Jesus Christ. Continuing on with chapter 19, the leadership of Christ, a desire to please. This is the question love is ever asking. What can I do to gratify, to make happy the object of my affection? Love is ever ready to do whatever it can and regrets that it cannot do more. Neither time, difficulties, nor expense concern the one whose heart is warmly engaged. But the world is not in the secret. They neither know nor appreciate the principles which motivate the people of God. Not only are they at a loss to understand why the Christian is no longer willing to join with them in the pleasures of sin, but also they fail to see what satisfaction he finds in reading the scriptures in secret prayer or public worship. They suppose that some mental derangement is responsible and advise him to leave such gloomy exercises to those on the verge of the grave. But the, lever, but the believer can answer, The love of Christ constraineth me. A pleasant assurance of acceptance. What a difference it makes when we are able to determine whether or not what we do will be favorably received. If we have reason to fear that the one for whom we work does not appreciate our efforts, we find little delight in the task and are tempted to spare ourselves. But if we have good reason to believe that our labors will meet with a smile of approval, how much easier is the labor and how much more readily will we do it with our might? It is this encouragement which stimulates Christ's disciples. They know that he will not overlook the smallest service in his name or the slightest suffering endured for his sake. For even a cup of cold water given to, on his account is acknowledged as though pro-offered immediately to him. Mark 9.41 Second, service is still easier and lighter if it is agreeable to our inclinations. Esau would probably have done anything to please his father to obtain the blessing, but no commandment could have been more agreeable to him than to be sent for venison because he was a hunter. Genesis 25:27. 27. 
the Christian has received from God a new nature, he has been made a partaker of the divine nature, 2 Peter 1.4. Just as the magnetic needle ever points to the North Star, so this spiritual principle ever turns to its author. Consequently, God's word is its food, communion with him its desire, his law its delight. True, he still groans under inward corruption, but these are part of sin's burden and no part of Christ's yoke. He groans because he cannot serve, his, serve him better. But just so far as he exercises his faith, he rejoices in every part of Christ's yoke. Professing his name is a holy privilege. His precepts are a profitable meditation, and suffering for Christ's sake is counted in high honor. Third, the burden of Christ is light because sustaining grace is granted to its wearer. Service to a loved one would be impracticable if you were infirm and incapacitated. Nor could you take a long journey to minister to a friend, no matter how dear, if you were crippled. But the yoke of Christ is easy in this respect too. He supplies sufficient grace to the bearer. Excuse me, he supplies sufficient grace to the bearer. What is hard to flesh and blood is easy to faith and grace. It is true, apart from Christ the believer can do nothing, John fifteen five, but it is equally true he can do all things through Christ strengthening him, Philippians four thirteen. It is true that even the youth shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall. Yet we are divinely assured they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Isaiah 40, 30-31 What more can we ask? It is entirely... Is it... It is entirely our own fault if we are not strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Ephesians 6.10 Whatever the Lord may call upon us to do, if we depend on Him in the use of appointed means, He will most certainly equip us for it. He is no Pharaoh requiring us to make bricks and providing no straw for the same. So far from it, he promises, As thy day, so shall thy strength be. Deuteronomy 33:25. Moses may complain, I am slow of speech and of a slow tongue. But the Lord assures him, I will be with thy mouth and teach thee what thou shalt say. Exodus 4:10 and 12. Paul acknowledged, Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything as of ourselves. Yet he at once added, but our sufficiency is of God, 2 Corinthians 3.5. So too, whatever suffering the Lord calls upon his people to endure for his sake, he will assuredly grant sustaining grace. All power in heaven and in earth belongs unto Christ, and therefore he is able to make our enemies flee before us and deliver from the mouth of the lion. Even though he permits his servants to be eaten and cast into prison, yet songs of praises are put into their mouths, Acts 16.25. Finally, the easiness of Christ's yoke appears in the rich compensations that accompany it. Under sin's yoke, we spent our strength for what we did not satisfy, but when wearing Christ's yoke, we find rest for our souls. If we live a life of pleasing self and seeking our own honor, then we reap misery and woe. 
But when self is denied and Christ is glorified, peace and joy is ours. No man serves Christ for nothing. In keeping his commandments there is great reward, Psalm 19.11, not of debt, but of grace after. The Christian may have much to cast him down, but he has far more to cheer him up and send him on his way rejoicing. He has free access to the throne of grace, precious promises to rest upon, and the consolation of the Holy Spirit to comfort his soul. He has a friend who sticketh closer than a brother, a loving father who supplies his every need, and the blessed assurance that when the appointed hour arrives, he shall go to another world where there is no sin or sorrow, but fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. Psalm 16.11 Chapter 20 The Example of Christ Two serious mistakes have been made by men in taking or not taking Christ for their example. It is difficult to determine which is more evil and fatal of the two. First, those who held up the perfect life of the Lord Jesus before the unconverted maintained that they must imitate it in order to find acceptance with God. In other words, they made emulating Christ the way of salvation to lost sinners. This is a fundamental error which cannot be resisted too strenuously. It repudiates the total depravity and spiritual helplessness of fallen man. It denies the necessity for the new birth. It nullifies the atonement by emphasizing Christ's flawless life at the expense of his sacrificial death. It substitutes works for faith, creature efforts for divine grace, man's faulty doings for the Redeemer's finished work. If the Acts and Epistles are searched, it will be revealed that the Apostles never preached imitating Christ as the way to obtain forgiveness of sins and secure peace with God. But in recent generations, the pendulum has swung to the opposite extreme. If a century ago the example which Christ has left his people was made too much of, our moderns make far too little of it. If they gave it a place in preaching to the unsaved, which Scripture does not warrant, we have failed to press it upon Christians to the extent Scripture requires. If those a century ago are to be blamed for misusing the example of Christ in connection with justification, we are guilty of failing to use it in connection with sanctification. While it is true that the moral perfections which Christ displayed during his earthly sojourn are still extolled in many places, how rarely one hears or reads of those who insist that emulating Christ is absolutely essential for the believer's preservation and ultimate salvation. Would not the greater majority of Orthodox preachers be positively afraid to make any such assertion, lest they be charged with legality? The Lord Jesus Christ is not only a perfect and glorious pattern of all graces, holiness, virtue, and obedience to be preferred above all others, but also He alone is such. In the lives of the best of the saints, Scripture records what is our duty to avoid as well as what we ought to follow. Sometimes one is puzzled to know whether it is safe to conform to them or not. But God has graciously supplied us with a sure rule which solves that problem. If we heed it, we will never be at a loss to see our duty. 
Holy men and women of Scripture are to be imitated by us only as far as they are themselves conformed unto Christ. 1 Corinthians 11.1 1. The best of their graces, the highest of their attainments, the most perfect of their duties were spoiled by blemishes, but in Christ there is no imperfection whatever, for he had no sin and did no sin. Christ is not only the perfect but also the pattern man, and therefore is his example suitable for all believers. This remarkable fact presents a feature which has not received the attention it deserves. There is nothing so distinctive in personality as racial and national characteristics. The greatest of men bear unmistakable marks of their heredity and environment. Racial peculiarities are imperishable and to the last fiber of his being excuse me racial peculiarities are imperishable to the last fiber of his being luther was a german knox a scot and with all his largeness of heart paul was a jew in sharp contrast jesus christ rose above heredity and environment nothing local transit national or sectarian dwarfed his wonderful wondrous personality Christ is the only truly Catholic man. He belongs to all ages and is related to all men because he is the Son of Man. This underlies the universal suitability of Christ's examples to believers of all nations who one and all may find in him the perfect realization of their ideal. This is indeed a miracle and exhibits a transcendent perfection in the man Christ Jesus which is rarely pondered. How remarkable that the converted Englishman may find in Christ's character and conduct a pattern as well suited to him as to a saved Chinese, that his example is as appropriate for the regenerated, regenerated Zulu as for the born-again German. The needs of Lord Bacon and Sir Isaac Newton were as truly met in Christ as those who, of the half-witted youth who said, I'm a poor sinner, and nothing at all, but Christ Jesus is my all in all. How remarkable that the example of Christ is, an is as appropriate for believers of the 20th century, now the 21st, as it was for those of the first, that it is as suitable for a Christian child as for his grandparent. He is appointed of God for this very purpose. One end why God sent his Son to become flesh and tabernacle in the world was that he might set before us an example in our nature in one who was like unto us in all things, sin accepted. Thereby he exhibited to us that renewal to his image in us of that return to him from sin and apostasy and of that holy obedience he requires of us such an example was needful so that we might never be at a loss about the will of God in his commandments having a glorious representation of it before our eyes that could be given us no other way than in his own nature the nature of angels was not suited to as an example of obedience especially in the exercise of such graces as we specially stand in need of in this world. What example could angels set us in patience in afflictions or quietness in sufferings when their nature is incapable of such things? Nor could we have had the perfect example in our nature except in one who was holy and separate from sinners.
Many scriptures, excuse me, many scriptures present Christ as the believer's exemplar. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lonely in heart. Matthew 11:29. Learn by the course of my life as well as by my words. When he putteth forth his own sheep, he goeth before them, and the sheep follow him. John 10:4. He requires no more of us than he rendered himself. I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. John 13:15. Now the God of patience and consolation grant you to be like-minded one towards another according to Christ Jesus. Romans 15:5. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. Philippians 2:5. Let us run with patience the race that is set before us looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. But if, when you do well and suffer for it, ye take it patiently, this is acceptable unto God. For even hereunto you are called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. 1 Peter 2, 20 to 21. He that saith he abideth in him ought himself so to walk, even as he walked. 1 John 2, 6 Example is better than precept. Why? Because a precept is more or less an abstraction, whereas an example set before us a concrete representation, therefore has more aptitude to incite the mind to imitation. The conduct of those with whom we are in close association exerts a considerable influence upon us, either for good or evil. The fact is clearly recognized in the scriptures. For example, we are enjoined, Make no friendship with an angry man, and with a furious man thou shalt not go, lest thou learn his ways and get a snare to thy soul. Proverbs 22:24-25. It was for this reason that God commanded the Israelites to utterly destroy all the inhabitants of Canaan so that they might not learn their evil ways and be contaminated by them. Deuteronomy 7, verses 2 to 4. Contrarywise, the example of the pious exerts an influence for good. That is why they are called the salt of the earth. In keeping with this principle, God has appointed the consideration of Christ's character and conduct as a special means to increase the piety in his people. As their hearts contemplate his holy obedience, it has a peculiar efficacy to their growing in grace beyond all other examples. It is in beholding the Lord Jesus by faith that salvation comes to us. Look unto me, and, and be ye saved all the ends of the earth. Isaiah 45:22. Christ is presented before the sinner in the gospel with the promise that whosoever believingly looks to him shall not perish but have everlasting life. John 3:14-15. This is a special ordinance of God and it is made effectual by the Spirit to all who believe. In like manner, Christ is presented to the saints as the grand pattern of obedience and example of holiness with the promise that as they contemplate him as such, we shall be changed into his image. 2 Corinthians 3.18 Our response to that appointment of God is rewarded by a growing in piety. But to get down to details, what is involved in the saints imitating of Christ? First, it presupposes that they are already regenerate. The hearts of his followers must be sanctified before their lives can be conformed to him. 
the spirit and principle of obedience must be imparted to the soul before there can be an external imitation of Christ's practice. This order is plainly enunciated, and I will give them one heart, and I will put a new spirit within you, and I will take the stony heart out of their flesh, and will give them a heart of flesh, that they may walk in my statutes, and keep mine ordinances, and do them, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. Ezekiel 11, verses 19 to 20. One who is yet in the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity has no heart for spiritual things. Therefore, the tree must be made good before it can produce good fruit. We must first live in the Spirit and then walk in the Spirit. Galatians 5.25 One might as well urge the Ethiopian to change his skin or the leopard his spots as call upon the unconverted to follow the example of Christ has left his people. Second, imitating Christ definitely denotes that no Christian may govern himself or act according to his own will. Those who are a rule unto themselves act in fearful defiance of the Most High. O Lord, I know that the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man that walketh to direct his steps. Jeremiah 10.23 A man may as well feign to be his own creator as his own guide. No man has wisdom enough to direct himself. When born again, we are conscious of that fact. Our proud hearts are humbled and our rebellious wills broken, and we feel the need of being led by another. The cry of a converted heart is, Lord, what wouldst thou have me to do? His answer to us today is, Follow the example which I left you. Learn of me. Walk as I walk. Third, if this imitating of Christ clearly implies that no man may pretend to be his own master, it is equally evident that no matter how wise or how holy he is, no Christian has the right or is qualified to rule others. Christ alone is appointed and fitted to be the Lord of his people. It is true that we read in the word that ye be not slothful, but followers of them who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Hebrews 6.12 And obey them that have the rule over you, and submit yourself, for they watch for your souls, as they that must give account. Hebrews 13.17 Yet that must be taken in subordination to the example of Christ. The best of men are but men at the best. They have their errors and faults, and where they differ from Christ, it is our duty to differ from them. It is very important that we be quite clear upon this point, for much mischief has resulted from allowing some to deprive others of a vital part of their rightful liberty. It is not that Scripture teaches an ecclesiastical democracy. That is as far from the truth as the Romish hierarchy at the opposite extreme. God has placed rulers in the church, and its members are commanded to obey them, but their rule is administrative and not legislative to enforce the laws of Christ and not invent rules of their own. Paul affirmed, Not for that we have dominion over your faith, but are helpers of your joy, for by faith ye stand. 2 Corinthians 1.24 And Peter declared of the elders or bishops, Neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being examples to the flock. 1 Peter 5.3 
filled with so great a measure of the spirit of wisdom and holiness as Paul was, yet he goes no higher than this, be followers of me, followers of me, even as I am also of Christ. 1 Corinthians 11.1 1. Fourth, the imitation of Christ plainly intimates that true Christianity is very strict and exacting and in no wise countenances licentiousness or the indulgence of flesh fleshly lust. This needs emphasis in such a day as ours when so much laxity prevails. People suppose they may be followers of Christ and yet ignore the path which he tra- traveled, that they may decline the unpleasant task of denying self and yet make, such, make sure of heaven. What a delusion! The vital necessity of the careful imitation of Christ disallows all loose walking and rejects the claim of any to being real Christians if they do not heed his example. Neither worldliness nor self-indulgence can find any protection beneath the wings of the gospel. The unvarying rule binding on all who claim to be his is let everyone that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity, 2 Timothy 2.19. Let him either follow the example of Christ or cease claiming to belong to him. Let him tread the highway of holiness or all his fair words are worthless. Fifth, the imitation of Christ necessarily implies the blemishes of the best of men. If the life of Christ is our pattern, then the holiest among his followers are obliged to admit they come far short of this standard of duty, and not in a few details, but in every respect. The character and conduct of the Lord Jesus were without spot or blemish. Therefore, they are so high above our poor attainments that we are filled with shame when we measure ourselves by them. Self-satisfied religionists may take delight in comparing themselves with others as the Pharisees did with the publican. Deluded souls delight in comparing themselves, I'm sorry, deluded souls who suppose that all Christian holiness consists of is measuring up to some humanly invented standard of perfection or entering into some peculiar experience may pride themselves that they have received the second blessing or have the fullness or baptism of the Spirit, yet all who honestly measure themselves by the perfection of Christ will find abundant cause to be humbled. This, too, is a point of tremendous practical importance. If I place my handkerchief against a dark background, it will appear spotlessly clean. But if I lay it upon newly fallen snow, the imperfection of its whiteness is quickly apparent. If I compare my own life with that preached by certain victorious life advocates, I may conclude that my life is quite acceptable. But if I diligently apply to myself the plumb line of Christ's example, then I must at once acknowledge, like Peter of old, I am but following him afar off. Surely none was more proficient in holiness and punctilious in obedience than Paul, yet when he compared himself to Christ, he declared, not as though I had already attained, neither was already perfect, but I follow after, if I may apprehend. Philippians 3.12 6. The imitation of Christ as our pattern clearly implies his transcendent holiness. 
that his holiness is high above that of all creatures. Therefore, it is the greatest of the Christian's ambitions to be conformed to his image. Philippians 3.10 Christ has a double perfection, a perfection of being and a perfection of working. His life on earth supplies a perfect rule for us because there was no blot or error therein. He was holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and such a high priest became us. Hebrews 7.26 Thus, the conformity of professing Christians to Christ's examples is both the test and measure of all their graces. The nearer anyone approaches to this pattern, the closer he comes to perfection. Finally, the Christian's imitation of Christ under the penalty of forfeiting his claim to any saving interest in Christ necessarily denotes that sanctification and obedience are the evidences of our justification and acceptance with God. Scriptural assurance is unattainable without sincere and strict obedience. The work of righteousness, not of loose living, shall be peace. Isaiah 32:17. We have it not for our holiness, but always, this is a quote from John Flavel, quote, We have it not for our holiness, but we always have it in the way of holiness. Let men talk what they will of the immediate sealings and comfort of the Spirit, without any regard to holiness or respect to obedience. Sure I am, whatever delusion they meet with in that way, true peace and consolation is only to be found and expected here. End quote. John Flavel, uh, to whom this article was in, in these seven points, uh, was indebted, Mr. Pink was indebted to. Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. 1 Peter 2.21 We have seen that not only is this the perfect life of Christ a suitable pattern of holiness and obedience for his people to imitate, but also that God has expressly appointed it for that purpose. This is so that we may have a sure rule to walk by, the law of God translated into concrete terms and its requirements set before us by a personal representation, and also for the purpose of humbling our proud hearts by revealing to us how far short we come of measuring up to God's standard of righteousness. Furthermore, God has appointed that the example of Christ should be followed by his people so that his Son might be honored by them, to distinguish his followers from the world and so that they should evidence the reality of their profession. Imitating Christ, then, is not optional but obligatory. This ends the reading of uh, tape number 13. Please go on to the next tape in the series and continue listening. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. Many free resources, as well as SWRB's complete mail-order catalog containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468. 1096 or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, T6L3T5. If you do not have a web connection, please request a free printed catalog. 
If you have a web connection and would like to be added to our email list, please send an email to add at swrb.com with the word add in the subject line. This book, Part 2 of Gleanings in the Godhead by A.W. Pink, is also available from Stillwater's Revival Books in soft cover format at a discount in our A to Z author listings. And please, don't forget to look over the 62 CDs that make up the Reformation and Puritan Bookshelf CD set. If you visit our website with website at swrb.com, as these CDs are a great way to build a major reform library at a fraction of the cost of the printed books.